This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. There's a good chance that you or someone you know will participate in one of the many charity fundraisers that take place in the summer. You'll walk, swim, ride, or run. But do you know how the money you donate is used? Ask them for how do they measure success? How do they measure impact? How do they keep themselves accountable to their donors? That's Karen Grieve-Young of Charity Intelligence Canada. She'll tell us exactly what you need to find out before you open your wallet. Or maybe you'd like to take the idea of giving back to the next level and start your own nonprofit. My other guest, Alistair Wilson, is behind a new school in Toronto that will train social entrepreneurs. Plus, this weekend, Ringo Starr celebrates his 72nd birthday. We'll look at the famous drummer's life and his work with the Beatles. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I certainly had no idea that it would happen in my lifetime at the beginning uh, more than 40 years ago because at the beginning people had no idea about where to look for it. That's Peter Higgs talking about the discovery of the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle, at the Large Hadron Collider earlier this week. The 83-year-old retired physicist first thought of the idea of a particle that holds the universe together and gives it substance in 1964. Higgs was present and wiped tears from his eyes when the discovery of the particle was announced. And not only does the particle bring fame to his name and work, it also gives him a monetary reward. Years ago, physicist Stephen Hawking, who says this discovery should earn Peter Higgs the Nobel Prize, made a $100 bet with Higgs that the particle would never be found. Now, Hawking has to pay up. There's some concerning news about Zoomers and drug abuse. The National Institute for Health in America has filed a consumer report warning seniors against addiction to many prescription drugs, including painkillers like OxyContin and Vicodin, depressants like Xanax and Valium, and stimulants like Concerta and Adderall. The Institute's report also says that problems taking medicine and unintentional abuse is a big contributor to overdosing and that people should frequently check with their doctors to make sure they're taking the right amount of their medicine at the right times and to make sure they aren't taking a dangerous combination of drugs. This week we lost a television icon. Andy Griffith passed away from a heart attack Tuesday at the age of 86. He found fame portraying the sheriff of the fictional small-town Mayberry on The Andy Griffith Show. The series ran from 1960 to 68, and at the time was one of the most popular television shows in America. However, it wasn't the only time Andy Griffith had the lead role on a major TV program. His second big success came much later in life when, in 1986, he took on the role of the folksy lawyer Ben Matlock. Matlock was a huge critical and rating success, 
and ran from 1986 until 1995. In 1992, Andy Griffith was inducted into the Academy of Television Arts Hall of Fame. And finally this week, the birthday of an iconic piece of clothing, the bikini. It was invented in 1946 by the French engineer Louis Réal. He said he got the idea after seeing women roll up their swimwear to get a better tan. He named his invention after Bikini Atoll, the site that was home to nuclear testing that year. However, when it came time to debut his invention, Réal could not find a model willing to put on the skimpy bathing suit, and he had to hire a new dancer from the Casino de Paris. After its debut, Louis Réal had a ton of fans, mainly young men, who sent him over 50,000 pieces of mail. And of course, that was in the days of snail mail. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The wonderful weather is here, and that means it's the season for walks, runs, and rides for charity. Supporting your friends and family in their volunteer work is a wonderful thing. But when you make a donation, do you really know where your money is going? I did an in-depth analysis in the current issue of Zoomer magazine. I spoke to Karen Grieve-Young of Charity Intelligence Canada, an organization devoted to giving us the facts and figures to make intelligent donation decisions. Karen, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Libby. Now, first of all, tell us what Charity Intelligence does for people. Absolutely. So Charity Intelligence Canada is a mostly volunteer-run charity itself that just wants to give Canadian donors the facts and the figures so that they can make intelligent donation decisions. Now, if you think about your financial accounts, you would never give your money to a broker and say, you seem nice, here you go, and not worry about the impact that your investments could have, i.e. your return on investment and the increase in your accounts. But what happens in charitable donations so often, too often, is that people make a donation without thinking, how much of this money is going to the charity itself as opposed to raising money? And how much of this money is going to achieve real impact? What are the programs that this money will actually go to? And is this the charity where I can have the biggest impact on either saving lives or improving treatment or improving experience for Canadians, which is why you're making the donation in the first place? Now, I know a lot of people who expect that 100% of their dollar that they give is going to go to the charity's work, whether it's research or support or whatever it happens to be. Now, when you talk to people who are expert in this, they say, come on, it costs money to raise money. So what is an appropriate level of the cost of fundraising? How do you even figure out what it is? It does, unfortunately, cost money to make money. If you are the best-kept secret in the health charity sector, you are likely to not be very well funded because if you're a secret, the donors don't know about you. Ideally, we like to see fundraising costs as a percent of income below 30%. If it can be closer to 20%, that's brilliant. For instance, Terry Fox Foundation, which is a huge charity, only has less than 12% in fundraising costs. It's largely volunteer and grassroots run. It does not have a lot of overhead the way that some of the other charities have. Terry Fox, which is one of the lowest, has 11.5% fundraising costs plus 6.1% administrative costs. Absolutely. So having less than 20% 
in total administrative and fundraising is quite extraordinary. Some of the others are a lot higher. Some of them are over 50%. And that gets to the point where you really wonder, is this the best use of my donation? Is it going where I want it to go? What are the other things that we should look at? You want to look at what the programs are that the money would go for. Firstly, do those programs resonate with what's important to you? And secondly, do those programs feel like they are the best way to have impact? One of the things that we talked about, for instance, in the cancer report that we published last spring was that there are certain cancers that don't have very much funding relative to others. So pancreatic cancer, stomach cancer, lung cancer, and colorectal cancer get much less funding than other cancers, which means that in a way, there's, there's more room to have impact there, whereas a very well-funded health charity might need the money less, which isn't to say that it doesn't serve a very real health need. But if you, the donor, want to have the greatest impact with your donation, you want to give it to the charity that has the greatest need. So Pancreatic Cancer Canada, which is charity that I'm involved in, I'll come clean, is a very small charity. And uh, it has very, very low overhead and fundraising costs, basically because at this point we have two full-time volunteers. We know ultimately that's not sustainable, but for now these two wonderful women continue to give all their time for free. Uh, and some people say you have to worry when the costs are too low. I wouldn't worry if the costs are too low if I knew that there were dedicated volunteers who have a long-term commitment involved. I might say that it, when the costs are particularly low, the charity might not be achieving its full potential. The charity with, a, with an investment in fundraising expertise or marketing expertise might be able to bring in so many more donations that it could really magnify its potential impact. Now, I, I'm looking again at some of the highest expenses. One of them that really piqued my interest, there was the uh, Cystic Fibrosis Canada. Now, very high admin and fundraising, together almost 55%. But the note said that they have adhered voluntarily to new and stricter accounting standards, which means they may have put things in their costs that other charities leave out. Right. And there's a lot of overlap in health charities in particular. We've most people who donate to health charities, and I know you are very active in uh, the walks and the runs, are, are participating in, for instance, fundraising events, which are, we all know are not just fundraising events. They are fundraising events, and they are awareness-building events, and they are marketing events. And I believe there's some latitude in how those are accounted for. One thing that we recommend, that Charity Intelligence recommends, is that you not only look for the impact a charity can have, but you look for a charity that could use your money now. So if a charity has between about six months and two years of their operating costs in reserves, it means that actually your donation will go to immediate use with the charity. Think about the, the relative need. Think about the need of the charity. Do you have anything that would be like a checklist for people? The first check is, is it important to me? The second check would be how much of my money would go to the cause? You can look at it in terms of the percent that won't go to administrative and fundraising expenses. You can also look at it as how high their reserves are and how, how badly they need your money. And then if you want to go into even further detail, you can look at what 
is the real impact, what feels like the real impact of the programs that they have. And that's where you might want to call and speak to someone at the charity, ask them for how do they measure success? How do they measure impact? How do they keep themselves accountable to their donors? Okay. Karen Grieve-Young, thanks so much. Great to see you. And you. You can read the whole story and see some of the numbers in my article, Acts of Charity, in the July-August issue of Zoomer magazine with Richard Branson on the cover. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Have you ever had an idea about starting your own nonprofit organization? Well, my next guest has started schools in the United Kingdom and Australia to help people do just that. And now Alistair Wilson is bringing his unique social entrepreneur education system to Canada. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Making sure your charitable donations count is just one way to give back. And many Zoomers want to do much, much more. After concentrating on family and careers, many want to find new work that can help make the world a better place. It's called social entrepreneurship, and Toronto is getting a new school to help people establish organizations or businesses that benefit their community. The School for Social Entrepreneurs Ontario is using a successful model from the United Kingdom that has spawned a thousand nonprofit ventures in the last decade. London-based CEO Alistair Wilson visited our studios when he was in town. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here. Well, you are opening a school for social entrepreneurs. Tell us about it, please. Yeah, okay. So the School for Social Entrepreneurs was set up 15 years ago by a chap called Michael Young in London, England. Um, And Michael was a serial social entrepreneur who in his lifetime invented everything from the Open University to Language Line to Consumers Association, which magazines. And he, after a lifetime of being a social entrepreneur, decided to set up the School for Social Entrepreneurs to help people who've got great ideas for social benefit to turn those into reality. What is a social entrepreneur? Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Well, a social entrepreneur is really somebody who is motivated to create social change or social impact um, and does so in an innovative or new way, takes a new approach to doing something to really solve a systemic or a problem that's been going on for many years. These enterprises, are they all non-profit organizations or some of them for-profits? How do they work? They're first and foremost a social purpose organization. And the people who come to us with their ideas well, it's their job to determine what legal structure to choose in order to best achieve that social impact. So the majority of them probably will use a company structure, which is a charity, essentially, and then some of them will use a for-profit legal structure to achieve those social ends. Our people will come to us with quite simply an idea. So they won't have a legal structure, there'll be no money, there'll be nothing really going on. It was just a person with an idea. And then maybe over the year that they're at the school, they come one day a week over a period of kind of nine months to a year. And over that period, they establish their thing. They maybe pilot it. Maybe they find a donor to give them um, a little bit of money to try it out and make it happen. Vast majority of the time, they're working um, pretty much full-time on their projects as a volunteer. And then eventually, 
maybe a trust or foundation or a corporate decides to um, give them a grant to help them establish the idea and get going. Now, then they can maybe get a job um, to run that organization and keep it going. Okay, so you've been around for 15 years and you have 12 locations in England and Australia. How many graduates have you turned out? So, yeah, we've got over a 1,000 people who've been through the schools and 83% are still going after an elapsed period of 10 years in their project. And they are truly from every walk of life you can imagine. So uh, why did you decide to expand to Canada? We had Canadians who are very interested in looking for great social impact organisations around the world um, and came to explore the idea of the School for Social Entrepreneurs and encouraged um, us to work in partnership with them to establish it here. It's actually it's going to be a Canadian-run uh, organisation independent of the UK with its own board and its own chief exec. How is it going to work? Is Where's the physical place going to be? What's tuition going to be? How is it all going to work? So, yeah, so it's in Toronto in the first instance, and I believe in the next few years it will go to Windsor and other areas in Canada. That's the plan. So the tuition is $1,500, and basically uh, you apply. You've got to have a real live idea to, to get on board with the programme. You'll join a cohort of 20 other amazing, interesting people with their ideas. And you spend uh, one day a week coming to the school. Um, so there's a regular facilitator who who supports the cohort of students. But what we do is we invite in practitioners, so people who have from scratch started their own social enterprises so that they can share their story and their motivation, which really inspires all the people in the room who are working up their ideas for social enterprises and helps both deal with some of the hard skills choices that they've got. You know, how do I write the strategy, how do I do the business plan, what are the financial questions or the, the business model questions, but also deals with some of the more tricky soft skills issues, you know, like the um, confidence you need to be able to start something. It provides modeling of, you know, confidence, attitude, mindset, behavior, persistence, how to deal with some of the politics of getting these types of things done. So it really inspires people to stick at it and see the thing through and, and get, get established and get going. Now, uh, I gather that it's aimed at what we call Zoomers, people who are uh, over 45. Why? Um, it, it's, it's, everyone is welcome. It so happens that we probably have a slightly tilted demographic towards the Zoomers. And the reason being, I think, is that I think as you grow older and you get more life experience... Um, you understand and you have more resilience to take things on and you understand how things might change. Um, so we have a lot of students who have maybe have time on their hands as well who want to see things change. They want to get involved in their communities and make a difference. Alistair Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you, Libby. The School for Social Entrepreneurs will be taking applications until August the 1st. For more information, go to sseontario.org. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. This weekend, a music legend is celebrating his birthday. In just a moment, we'll return with a look at the life and music of Ringo Starr. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. 
Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. This weekend, Ringo Starr celebrates his 72nd birthday. He was the oldest Beatle, but also the last of the Fab Four to join the group. He met the Beatles in October 1960 when his band, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, performed at the same clubs the Beatles played in Hamburg, Germany. Starr sat in with the Beatles on multiple occasions, but it wasn't until August 1962 that he officially became the drummer of the Beatles, replacing Pete Best. Ringo was known for his odd quips and phrases that became the inspiration behind some of the Beatles' famous songs. Phrases such as, It was a hard day's night and tomorrow never knows. However, he felt frustrated as a songwriter and stated in the Beatles anthology that when he presented a song to the other three members of the group, they would often shoot him down, saying his pieces were too similar to other hit songs of the day. He kept at it, though, and one of his songs became one of the Beatles' most memorable hits. From the 1969 album Abbey Road, here is Octopus's Garden. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden. In the shade I'd ask my friends To come and see That was Octopus's Garden, one of the few songs written entirely by Ringo Starr, who just celebrated his 72nd birthday. I'm Libby Snymer, and that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. Be sure to join me next week when my guest will be Peter McLeod of the Canadian War Museum. He's just written a book on the anniversary being marked this summer in many spots across Ontario, Quebec, and the U.S., the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812. We'll see you then. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.